This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The United Nations estimates that drought brought on by the effects of climate change could displace as many as 700 million people by the end of this decade. Climate change has long become a humanitarian issue. Hunger is rising faster than at any previous point since the turn of the century. Scientists predict the world's oceans could rise five to six feet by the year 2100. Climate is going to make the situation much more desperate for vulnerable populations and it is leading to increased fragility, violence, conflict and subsequent displacement. The fact that Switzerland did not pass a law about CO2 indicates that it's the developed countries which have been more difficult to convince. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, And this week, as the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26, gets underway in Glasgow, We're going to take a look at what other branches of the United Nations, the humanitarian agencies, are hoping and expecting. We've got a great panel here to discuss this. Gernot Laganda, who's head of climate and disaster risk reduction at the World Food Programme, and Andrew Harper, special advisor on climate action with the United Nations Refugee Agency, and as ever, our analyst, Daniel Warner. I'd like to start off by asking Gernot and Andrew, when we talk ahead of these big conferences, we very often are focusing on how much we might have to reduce our energy consumption in the developed world, how much we need to reduce our flying and our car driving. But you, of course, from the humanitarian arm of the United Nations, I imagine you're looking at this a little bit differently. Gerenet, maybe I could start with you, the World Food Programme. You must be seeing in some of the places you work the effects of climate change already in, in a very existential way. Yes, uh, this is true, Imogen. Uh, there is an increasing number of crises that are caused by climate extremes such as the one we see right now unfolding in Madagascar. The south of the country has been struck by back-to-back droughts all the way since 2019, and that has had catastrophic impacts on agriculture, has forced people to resort to desperate survival measures. And right now there are over 1 million people in the region who need urgent assistance, 14,000 of which are already experiencing famine. And then we see increasing problems on the map flashing in dark red that we have not been used to uh, in the past. So in the dry corridor of Central America, which uh, stretches across Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, around 8 million people are food insecure, which is about four times as many as two years before. And when you look into the reasons, 2020 has seen the busiest Atlantic hurricane season on record with 30 significant storms, some of the strongest ones they have hit in November uh, in quick succession. And then they hit an area that was already strained by extended dry spells, loss of harvests uh, of staple crops, and then, of course, also the economic effects of COVID-19. So we we see certain hotspots emerge on the map that are now flashing in deep dark red. We were not used to those in the past, but we prepare for 
a new normal that is looking more and more like that. Southern Madagascar, where years of failed rains has left hundreds of thousands of people staring down the barrel of what the UN is calling the world's first climate change famine. Andrew, when people are facing food insecurity, famine even, they're going to move, aren't they, to try and save their lives? Well, there's a whole host of reasons why people move. As far as refugees are concerned, it's, it's basically a situation of conflict where people are facing persecution, discrimination and other forms of um, violence. But what we're seeing now with the climate crisis is that some of the underlying vulnerabilities and grievances are, are being exacerbated. And so while it may be challenging to pin climate change as a key driver of some of these huge population movements, what we can say is certainly exacerbating these vulnerabilities and it is leading to increased fragility, violence, conflict and subsequent displacement. So this is what we're, what we're looking at because as a humanitarian uh, protection agency, it's not sufficient any longer to wait or to react. Climate change is real. Science is telling us it's only going to get worse. Global warming is baked in. And so if we've got this evidence in front of us, we need to start being more strategic about how we um, prepare and respond because the challenges that are coming down the road are far bigger than what anyone has been able to deal with or be prepared for in the past. Danny, already got your hand up. What are you thinking about what you've been hearing yeah, so far? I was interested. Gernot used the word prepare. Andrew used the word underline. And I thought aid agencies were like band-aids. They came in when there was a disaster or a need and they fixed it. Uh, it seems to me if you're talking about prepare and prevent, you're almost talking about nation building. And that's something it seems to me that's difficult for aid agencies to sell because it becomes very political. If I can sort of go in um, and respond to Danny, it's not that aid agencies should be doing the work, but it's not sufficient any longer to be a Band-Aid when you've got, and Gernot can confirm this or not, but last year we had 100 million more people who were made food insecure due to a combination of COVID, of conflict, of climate change. Last year we also had another 10 million people displaced. Band-Aids are just not going to be sufficient in the world that we're being confronted with. We need to be much more strategic. And as a protection agency, as a uh, humanitarian agency, we need to drive the ambition and bring the human focus of these crises to the fore. So it's not just an issue of aid agencies being siloed into their own little area. What we have to be doing, and this is what uh, we're doing with with everyone from WFP to the World Bank to, um, to states themselves, is to acknowledge that climate is going to make the situation much more desperate for vulnerable populations and how can we work with them to prevent that vulnerability from occurring in the first place. So it just makes sense that rather than wait and be a Band-Aid, that you try and prevent that injury from occurring in the first place or if you can't prevent the injury, at least mitigate the extent of that it's no longer sufficient that we wait at one end of the border for people to flee. Half of Afghanistan's provinces have been gripped by a drought crisis and climate change is being blamed. You're not. The very fact that the World Food Programme has your position, climate and disaster risk reduction, is an indication, isn't it, that you're thinking along the same lines as Andrew? Yeah, this is 
for sure the case. I mean, many people know WFP's track record saving lives after emergencies, after storms, floods, and droughts, but not many understand that we are really facing a runaway scenario of humanitarian needs in which the available finance is never enough to meet the needs. So when, when partners, also our donors are asking why we are engaging on climate action, then there is a very straightforward answer. There is no way to reach zero hunger by 2030 or any time other than that with humanitarian aid alone. That leads into a second, second argument, which is that very often climate change adaptation is a little bit relegated to the development dialogue. So people think it's development with a little bit of extra so that you have development investments adapted to climate change. But I think there is a, a large number of capacities that governments need in order to understand and appraise risk, in order to establish early warning, contingency capacities. These are capacities that are really been practiced by humanitarian agencies for decades. So there is a large space here where uh, humanitarian agencies can help transfer some of these skills to governments so that they are able to manage growing risks in a rapidly changing environment. Danny, yeah. I think you wanted to come in there. Gernot was talking about transferring some of the, the, the skills the, the aid agencies have to, to governments. How receptive do you think they're going to be? That was exactly my point. If I modify now, Andrew, my point about nation building, I'm now talking about interference in the domestic policies of a country. Suppose I don't want you to interfere. Don't I have the right to be responsible for my own country if I'm the legitimate government? Any UN agency does not become involved in a state unless there's an invitation there, unless the state requests that we provide our good offices when, when required. So it's not an issue of, of nation building. It's an issue of, of providing support to governments, communities to enhance the level of protection that they're providing to their population. So I, I don't see any conflict in, in that sort of relationship. And if anything, probably the states who are most aware of the challenges that climate change is posing combined with other mega trends, including urbanization, challenges to nature, pollution, are those countries which are on the front lines of the climate emergency. It's the smaller states, the states such as Bangladesh or Fiji or Chad, like they're the ones who are coming up and sort of saying, how can we learn from others? How can we get support? And so everything has to be done through collaboration. If it's top down, it's never going to work. It has to be coming up from the communities in a coordinated manner, uh, developed at the country level. And so that we not just approach the challenges of climate change and development issues and governance as a humanitarian response, but it's linked into humanitarian development, peace building and security. Because that much more coherent, strategic, collaborative response is the only way which you're going to make significant change. One agency going in and saying we're going to fix climate change is not going to have any impact whatsoever. Torrential rains fill up this dam in the Yemeni region of Marib, forcing it to overflow. Nearby refugee camps have been damaged. The rains have also downed power lines and destroyed crops. What we're looking at is we're looking at human security. And if you just have an ad hoc short-term response to the biggest challenge the world is facing, then you're not going to have success. You need to be looking at what will be the situation in these regions in 2030, 2040, 2050, work back from that, 
look at how that fits in with the national adaptation plans, look at how development actors are working in these areas, but most importantly, ensuring that you're working towards collective goals which drive human empowerment. At its, like it's, we cannot be looking at a sort of a neo-colonialistic approach that we're driving and we're, we're top heavy coming down with, um, with programs and, and support. We need to be identifying what is it that populations on the ground require to best adapt to this existential crisis. I just hone in on that um, buzzword neocolonialist um, for the moment, though, because when Danny asked that question, I was thinking about that from a rather different point of view. And, and that is that it is not governments in the countries that you work in reducing their CO2 emissions that is going to mitigate climate change. You said global warming is baked in. Rising sea levels to a certain extent are probably baked in, too. And the only way to change the speed of that is for the wealthy countries to reduce. They are responsible for the lion's share of CO2 emissions and global warming. China is by far the world's largest emitter with 27% of global emissions. It's followed by the USA with 15% and the European Union with around 10%. So my question really is, Gernot, do you think you have willing partners and uh, listening ears in the governments, the movers and shakers at COP26? Well, I, I think it always depends whether you tackle this uh, conversation from the climate change mitigation or climate change adaptation angle. I think right now a big part of the conversations is related to climate change mitigation aspects about you know phasing out coal, reducing dependency on fossil fuels, uh, reforming transport and energy systems. Adaptation in these conversations is not always on equal footing. And adaptation is, in a sense, what the countries in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America need the most urgent. So when you look a little bit at the financing spectrum, how much of climate finance globally is spent on mitigation, and how much is spent on adaptation, then we are looking at roughly uh, only 20% of climate finance that is made available to developing countries going to adaptation. And this is very, very little, considering that these impacts that we're talking about are materializing as we speak. A village that has something armed groups want and villagers need, a well abundant in water. They killed farmers and herders and stole their produce and animals. She fled south, but then came a series of droughts. She fled again, following the clouds, hoping for rain. So we are talking about collectively limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. But when you go to a hydromet service in the Sahel, in Mali or in Burkina Faso, you look at the records, they are already living, working, operating in a future that is two and sometimes even three degrees warmer than pre-industrial averages. Because 1.5 degrees is a global average, uh, land, water, everything combined. And in a sense, you know, I mean, we are collectively driving towards a cliff, but humanitarians, I think, have very, very clearly ahead of themselves that there are many people who have already lost their lives at the bottom of that cliff. People who lost their livelihoods, their homes, their loved ones in countries that are already two or sometimes three degrees warmer. So to my mind, um, in these international conversations, the adaptation conversation is really very urgent. And there's another conversation around loss and damage because losses and damages from climate-induced events 
are going to materialize no matter how fast we mitigate or even how much money we now put into longer term adaptation efforts. They're going to happen in six months from now, next year. They're already correlated to climate change, as the new IPCC report has, has told us. So to my mind, probably the visibility of how climate change is really linked with humanitarian action and with the actual humanitarian needs out there, that awareness is not yet really, really fully, uh, fully there. So I guess we need mitigation and adaptation. I think we would all agree on that. But the bottom line is, unless the big CO2 emitters mitigate, you guys are going to have a lot more work to do. Danny, I, I want to ask you first, and then maybe Andrew, um, how do we appeal to wealthy countries who are coping with the economic fallout of a pandemic, many of whom, including supposedly environmentally conscious Switzerland, which we're sitting in at the moment, um, did not meet their CO2 emissions reduction targets this year. How do we appeal to them? Say, look, you, you know, you've got to get on with this now. Gernot was talking about Africa and Asia, but to follow on Imogen's point, the Swiss just voted against resolution dealing with CO2. So in effect, we may see uh, the consequences of climate change easily in, in Africa, Asia, or on certain Pacific islands. But the fact that Switzerland did not pass a certain law about CO2 indicates that it's the developed countries which have been more difficult to convince that they should change their behavior. Today, the European Union laid out plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions 55% by the end of the decade. It calls for phasing out the sale of petrol and diesel cars by the year 2035. And it also calls for a carbon tax that both the US and China oppose. Andrew, how do you talk to governments. Do you make the point to them, for example, you know what, you need to do more on climate mitigation, otherwise you're going to get a lot more climate refugees? I don't think it's necessarily the best value for money to be hitting all the states all the time on, on something which is so clear. It's not that they don't know, it's just that they're, they're unwilling to take the necessary action. What my focus is, is to bring the human consequences of climate change and the impact of climate change on, on some of these other areas, which often lead to increased fragility, conflict, displacement, bringing that to the fore and saying, look, like, it's not only an issue of whether we talk about 1.1 degree warming or 1.5 degree warming or two degrees, there is a human consequence to this. And if you do not start getting a, a rain on this exponential increase in global temperatures. And it's like, I don't think we've seen this level of CO2 in our atmosphere for the last 800,000 years. If people are not taking that seriously, then we have to change tact and bring the human face to it. And so when you ask, like, what do I talk to states about? I say, look, 90% of the world's refugees originate from countries that are on the front lines of the climate emergency. There is a linkage. It may not be direct, but there is a linkage between the increase in global temperatures, increase in competition to, in access to water, challenges to livelihoods, uh, which leads to increased fragility, conflict, violence, displacement. And so unless you want to see more of that, then you need to start getting a grip on, on your emissions. But unfortunately, and this is where the IPCC has been extremely clear, it's going to only get worse for a number of decades. 
So what we're trying to do is bring the human focus and say, you either provide protection to people where they are now, you need to provide empowerment, support to adaptation, or you'll have to provide protection to where they will move in the future. It's simple. No one can survive in places when there is an increase of, it's not only like 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, you could be looking at a 6 degree increase in temperature or, or a 7 or 8 degree increase in temperature. And I think one of the challenges that uh, Gernot and, uh, and others will be facing in the future is that existing crops in the, many of these areas will no longer survive. We already saw a challenge in, um, in Bangladesh this year when you had extreme weather conditions that destroyed part of the rice harvest. That's only sort of at a 1.5 degree increase. We're likely to see a huge challenge in regards to food security across whole swathes of the world in the future. And that could be driving both population movements and conflict. The climate crisis could lead to an extra 183 million people facing hunger by 2050, as our warming planet affects how food is grown and distributed. Uh, at the same time, while we're dealing with COVID-19 pandemic, we're also on the brink of a hunger pandemic. And the other issue which is often neglected is that people become very fearful that populations move. Populations move because they often have no other choice. And in essence, only those populations who've got the capacity to move can move. The ones who are extremely vulnerable, uh, the elderly, the, the women, the children, people with disabilities, they're the ones who are left behind. So when we talk about one of the biggest challenges in regards to climate change, we need to be talking about the increasing level of vulnerability and what that will mean in the future. Like we're going backwards against the SDGs across the board. Unless we deal with emissions, unless we start taking this seriously, no one is going to escape the consequences of this. Gernot, do you want to, to come in there? I was interested in what Andrew said, that there will be places where they can't grow the traditional crops. Is this going to be a strategy for the World Food Programme to support communities to switch crops? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's going to be a strategy, I think, for the entire UN system. But overall, I would say that people on the front lines of the climate crisis in Madagascar, Bangladesh or Sudan, they do not have the luxury to wait until countries are following through on their nationally determined contributions to the climate convention. So in parallel with these ambitious cuts in carbon emissions, which, which is really a very long range risk management strategy, we need these efforts on adaptation. And there are adaptation efforts, including in agriculture, where you have an adaptation and a mitigation benefit together rolled in one. For example, the restoration of degraded ecosystems. When I look into the types of programs that, that operate at scale in, in WFP, then we have many where food insecure populations restore degraded ecosystems as natural buffers against climate hazards. And this can be through hedgerows, uh, reforestation of, of degraded hillsides, and the trees that get planted, they sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So you have a mitigation co-benefit and you can do that at scale and you can link it with uh, humanitarian and food security objectives. Uh, but then there are other things as well. I mean, you've, you've mentioned diversification of agricultural value chains, for example. For us, another important aspect is helping people anticipate climate hazards before they turn into disasters. So using early warning systems more effectively to trigger finance for preventive action, which then also saves some of this precious humanitarian funding that you never have enough of. So the world has become a riskier place, but advances in science can also help us understand 
who will be hit by what and when. And when we then make use of these new technologies, I think we can reach also cost-benefit ratios where $1 invested in preventive action saves us at least 2 to $3 in response costs. This is then also money that does not need to be provided from, from donors such as Switzerland because we have been smarter about anticipating, forecasting, and providing support to people early. Just days before COP26 opens in Glasgow, another scientific report on climate change is a thundering wake-up call, according to the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres. The time has passed for diplomatic niceties. If governments, especially G20 governments, do not stand up and lead this effort, we are headed for terrible human suffering. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. Well, we are close to the end of this programme, so I'm going to have one question to each of you just to end. Danny, to you first. What if you were heading to COP26 and you'd got world leaders in a room together? What from this conversation would you take and put to them? Well, I I just would hope that the pandemic hasn't put climate change on the back burner uh, and to remind people that the medium and long term, this is something that we have to deal with right now. Uh, But with the pandemic, it seems to be difficult. And hopefully the COP26 can put this back on the front burner. Andrew, what if there was one particular outcome you could hope for from COP26? What would it be? putting the human dimension to the impact of climate change uh, front and centre. There's a lot of discussions regards to percentage increase in carbon emissions, um, the need for this, the need for that. But what is missing is the fact that there's people in the most vulnerable situations of the world who are going to be made more vulnerable. And the numbers are just going to grow exponentially unless we take this seriously. And so going back to Danny's point, we need to get those states who are the main culprits for emissions to understand that unless they change the way in which they approach the earth, there will be consequences which someone will have to pay for. And they cannot just continue to make the most vulnerable pay for it. Gernot Laganda, World Food Programme, final words to you. What's your your desired outcome of COP26? It would be great if parties to the conventions would recognize that climate change has long become a humanitarian issue, that we're not looking into uh, slow increases. We are looking, we are in the territory by now of tipping points in the global climate system. We're in a space where humanitarian needs, where hunger is rising faster than at any previous point since the turn of the century. So I would like everybody to bring a sense of urgency to the issue. We really have the last decade available in order to build the systems for a world that might look very, very different. So the humanitarians in 10 years time will be confronted with a number of needs if we do not get our act together that is very, very different from the amount of needs we see today. And even today, we are not able internationally to meet all the humanitarian needs out there with 811 million people who are suffering from hunger, uh, with a capacity of servicing about 120 with food assistance. You can see how much of a gap we will likely experience. So the sense of urgency to me is really the most important point. 
Well, let's hope that some of that sense of urgency is indeed conveyed to the member states meeting for COP26 in Glasgow. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva, Gernot Luganda of the World Food Programme, Andrew Harper, UN Refugee Agency, and our analyst Daniel Warner. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. And coming up in the next few weeks, killer robots are back on the negotiating table in Geneva. Will campaigners succeed in getting a ban? And are we getting humanitarian work wrong? We'll be asking two experts why they think aid needs to be decolonized. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.